welcome to The Mason Jar on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always here in The Mason Jar, I am joined by Cindy Rollins. Cindy, how's it going? It's going very well. So uh, we are here to talk about Charlotte Mason. Uh, we say this show is Charlotte, all, all Charlotte Mason all the time. Uh, we are here to answer listener questions, and of course, people have sent in questions to us uh, via the Facebook page and via email. If you want to send in a question in a future episode, you can find us on the Mere Motherhood group on Facebook. You just go to the Facebook groups tab, uh, search area and type in Mere Motherhood, or you can shoot us an email. Um, and Cindy, your email is cindy at ordo-amoris.com, right? That is correct. Okay. So we have not done a Q&A in a little while. So we've got uh, three or four questions and we're just going to jump right into it. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> okay. As always, right? <laughs> right. Okay. So um, this first question, um, I, I don't know if you've spent a ton of time thinking about this one. Um, I don't know what what you did. I feel like for some reason this question maybe is a little more relevant or prevalent or whatever the word is now than maybe it was when your kids were younger. This is just That's just a hunch. I don't know if it's true. So here's the question. How much should we worry about teaching current events in our homeschool? Uh, and of course, in particular, in a Charlotte Mason-based homeschool. Do you have any thoughts on that? Did you, um, did you worry about that at all when your kids were younger? Well, I was really into, I've always been kind of a news junkie. I'm, okay. I'm less so now. Now that the news is so, um, it, it almost seems so manipulated. I don't pay as much attention to yeah. it as I once did. I used to yeah. get up every morning. When we had a TV, I used to get up every morning and watch the Today Show and then Phil Donahue. And that's, that's how, how old I really am. And, <laughs> um, and I really, really paid attention to the news. Uh, my mom, one time when she saw Ann Coulter on TV, she said, that's what you could have done if you didn't have all those kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> But it's funny now, I very rarely turn on uh, the TV. I, I, I never, and then we didn't have a TV. So we did, with our family, we, we subscribed to World Magazine's little news newsletters that they have. And I think they actually still put those out. I don't know what they're called, but they were they were kind of like the weekly readers that we I got when I was a little kid in school. And they were news-oriented okay. from a Christian perspective. Okay. And that was great because um, the kids forward to the newspapers arriving and um, they read them and we we were we were still listening to the radio a lot uh, so we knew what was going on in the world and we talked about it the very first time um, I, I have a story and I don't know it might be offensive to some people so just take it for what it was at that time but we always listened to NPR because that was really the only place we got news and we were very heavily involved in all the elections that that went through. We participated in several campaigns. We went to the uh, Walk for Life in Washington um, sometimes, and we just um, we were very involved um, politically mm. in that way. Well, we were getting all our news from NPR the very first time um, um, Bill Clinton was elected, and we in our family we weren't really wanting him to be elected. <laughs> so my oldest son was like eight, I think. Okay. And we were constantly hearing that this negative spin, negative spin on all the things we believed. And I really wasn't saying a whole lot to him, but he picked up on that. Yeah. And one day we turned on the radio and we heard this guy we'd never heard before. And this is where it gets probably offensive to some people. <laughs> um, but it was Rush Limbaugh. 
And I, I didn't know who he was, and my son didn't know who he was. And we were just sitting there listening. We stayed in the car. It was the day after the election results. Mm. And my son said, now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> I laughed because I, it, was no, it was not me telling him, um, you know, this is our opinion. This is theirs. now. And, and I know I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh now, and I don't know what track all that's taken. But at that time, we we only had very liberal news. And and so to hear someone come along and reflect a more conservative view was really exciting for us at that moment in time. But, yeah, of um, course, now things are such so polarized and it's all about being an extremist. And so it's, exactly. it's different. It's a totally different conversation now as far as, you know, where's the right, where's the left, where, who who's telling the truth. We, we have I, – I, I'm not able to figure that out, so I just kind of ignore a yeah, good I think, portion of I think, the news. I think one of the things that makes teaching current events so difficult now is that the way media is created and presented is so much about – it's so much about clicks and eyeballs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you always have wanted yeah. readers, but there's so many different, it, we're so inundated by it all the time now. And it's hard to sort through what is true and what isn't and, and what the reliable sources are and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not, and I'm not even trying to talk about the kind of flavor of the moment, fake news hashtag type stuff. I'm just talking right, about, right. there's just so much. And even, it's, yeah, figure, even take it's hard all to all the fake news out and yeah. we, we still don't know how to wade through it. Exactly. And like whether you're getting it from Facebook or there's 50 news channels on your television if you have cable or, you know, there's all these different newspapers that are still, you know, they've shifted their stuff to online and they're trying to figure out how to get your attention. And then you do have the NPRs and the kind of the old school sources and stuff. And it's just hard to figure out how to sort through that. And I imagine that, you know, my kids are so young right now that they're not they're not trying to process that. But I I remember being, you know, I guess I'm the a little bit younger than your oldest because I remember that. um that that first Clinton election, I remember my parents talking about it, and that's the first kind of time when I was conscious uh, conscious of, you know, the political world and news outside right, of my own right. like family or town or whatever. Um, and as you get older, those things you start to become more interested in. It. And I, I, I don't even know what I would do or what I will do, just with trying to help my kids understand how to sort through all of this. And what current yeah, events so are worth talking about? It's a much more about. complicated world. It was actually easier for us than it's going to be for you, I feel like. Well, you know how my dad was saying something about this recently. Like, the world seems worse now because faraway places seem closer. So it seems like something bad is always happening. It's not probably that more bad things have been happening. It's just that we hear about so many more of them because they are so much easier to sensationalize than the good things that are happening. And it just feels like it's you know, how to wade through all that is just so well, when, tricky. When you have an internet vying for everybody's attention, um, I, I noticed that when I was blogging, if yeah. I put up something opinionated and controversial, I got a, a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes I just was being opinionated and controversial. But later I thought if I was the kind of person that wanted to build a blog or build a presence, um, I, that's what I would do. I would have to say something provocative and then, you know, get all these people coming and arguing about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I didn't find that all that fun. Um, it's fun to give your opinion and, and, you know, it, 
there are fun things you can ask people that are opinionated and it's okay to have an opinion. That's the other thing. And we're yeah, actually going to yeah. be talking about that today later in the question Q and a, um, about how we do all, we do have opinions and, um, learning in this culture where we, maybe we have way too many opportunities to say our opinion. Um, but it's, it's not wrong to have an opinion. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, do you have any tips or advice or know of any resources that are that are that you would say are good for that that younger person who's kind of having an awakening about the world around them and wants to, you know, how is beginning to have opinions about political or social uh, issues? Know, I think that if you if your kids are really, you know, ideas have consequences. So, if mm-hmm. you can make sure they're reading some good books that are um that that are not polarizing in, in any way, but you know, Charlotte Mason was very, um, she really didn't think that we should, um, be too distinctive in what we're teaching our children. Like we're, we, we don't want to separate, 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 separate ourselves until there's just me left. And I'm, you know, um, it's just, you know, the thing where it's just me and the, and I'm not sure about the, um, and, and I think sometimes we, 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 split hairs too much with our kids so that, so that we're, we're expecting them to live in a world that doesn't exist with, with just this narrow opinion. So I think you should be careful about that. But I know there was a, there are, there used to be some great books like Gary, DeMar, uh, Gary, not Gary DeMar, Gary, um, somebody had a book called thinking straight. Maybe it was Gary DeMar thinking straight in a crooked world. And, and just the whole um, Francis Schaeffer series, How Shall We Then Live? Um, I, I would not miss that, um, even though it's very dated in some ways. In some ways, he, he's, he traces how ideas have consequences throughout culture. And so he takes us back way, way back to, um, you know, pre-medieval times to show us how art reflects thought. And I think that kind of thing is very important. Mm. Um, you get to see, oh, okay, this is how. Honestly, the, it, this goes back to what me. I'm always talking about connecting the the past to the the present because of the future. We're going to connect the things of the past to where we are now, so that our children can carry them into the future. So maybe in order to study current events, it's important to go back. And, and make sure your foundation of the past is 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 strong, and then let that color how you view um, the, the the current situation. Yeah, I mean the study of history is so important for that reason. Um, yeah, because and that's... It's really, even if you read Plutarch, which Charlotte Mason suggested, which I suggest also, is you'll you immediately start to see um, similarities. Oh wow, that was going back. Like your dad was saying, you know, this has been going on for a long time. The same things that were causing division in ancient Rome and ancient, you know, Athens are causing division in our culture, too. We just, like you said, everybody knows about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, there are many resources. If you have a a student who is particularly inclined towards um, philosophy or understanding politics or whatever, then that's where probably... Uh, writers like Russell Kirk um, oh, yeah, would be really yeah, helpful yeah. just in understanding right. how conservative, you know, the true conservatism and the way politics work and things like that, and discussing Edmund Burke and back to Plato and so forth. Right. If you if you're following some book lists that um, that you know go back to these thinking thinkers from the past and and then all the way up through, I mean, you know, Russell Kirk, the the his 
book, the, the what is it, the American mind, the the, um, the conservative mind. Yeah. Him? No, not the conservative mind. His book that traces the history oh, the of the roots uh, of American uh, order. Yeah. The yeah, roots yeah, of American yeah. order. I mean, that would be for an older yes. child. That would definitely be something you want them to read. Yeah. In and, fact, I might say that, that is a must read for any like 16, 17, 18 year old before they leave your house and they've been studying history. That's probably a must read. Yes. Yes. And I mean, Paul Johnson is a good author yeah. to look at. I like his books for that sort of cultural yep. and, and his, even some good thinking, uh, like Robbie Zacharias. I would, I, I always, I, my kids always read his books and I felt like they were good at grounding them in, um, thought and ideas in a Christian perspective hmm. without yeah. being polarizing in, in any way. I definitely, I haven't read the Robbie Zacharias ones, but I definitely co-signed that Paul Johnson idea his books are great and his his american history on american history and politics is very long but very very good um, yeah another author from a christian perspective it would be michael horton he covers uh, culture a lot and he does it in a great way and honestly i'm going to tell you I, I didn't even think about this when you because i didn't know you were going to ask this question but i want to plug a book and I don't think you'll mind uh, at all because it. it's by um, John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel. And both um, John and Brett's um, wives uh, attend the Cersei Conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But um, they have a new book called A Practical Guide to Culture. And it is an excellent book. It's easy to read, but it has a lot of information. And I'm reading through it. And right now, I just get up in the morning to read a little bit. And I've thought several times, oh, this is so helpful. And this would be, the way this book is set up, it would be a great morning time read um, for, hmm. for your family um, hmm. if you just read short amounts. So it's called A Practical Guide to Culture and um, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. And it's by John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel. And um, <laughs> so that's a shameless plug. I didn't even intend to give, but I definitely <laughs> will give. <laughs> yeah. Um, and John Stone Street is with, um, he took over for, uh, what's his name? I'm, I'm drawing a blank uh, now that I'm saying this, now that, yeah, now that we're. Oh, my goodness. Now my brain just went blank. To, well, I wish you wouldn't have said your blank, blank. Uh, it's the um, Chuck Colson. Yeah, Chuck Col Colson. Right, right, yeah. Yes, yes. And Brett the is um, in the midst of starting um, a cultural ministry right now, a new cultural ministry. And they both worked a lot with um, that. Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it, but it was a um, Christian organization where Summit, maybe Summit. Yeah, yeah, Summit. Yep, yep. Yeah. So. Um, that, that, that's a great book. Okay. Let's move on to the next question now. Um, this one may have been a bit a better one to, to do in August before the school year started, but hopefully it's early enough that any advice that you give here will be able to help people adjust on the fly. But someone asked on the Facebook page how to schedule subjects in Charlotte Mason. So in other words, should all subjects get covered every day or should you split them up? Like do some Monday, Wednesday, Friday, some Tuesday, Thursday. Are there certain subjects that need to be done every day in your opinion? Um, I know you've, you touched on this kind of periodically in different Relate, as relates yeah, to different questions, yeah. but I thought let's you know let's ask the, uh, ask this question directly. Yeah, for our family, it wasn't a school day if we didn't do math, and let, even if even if we didn't have morning time, that was okay. But if for for it to be a school day, we had to do math, reading, and a written narration. Now the reading would be, would have been across a wide range, but that's what I considered the most basic 
uh, school day if, uh, or the on a worst case scenario day, you know. Yeah, um, you're right. And then subjects. Some subjects you're gonna you're gonna do better. Uh, I mean, if you if you have a lot of your subjects covered by wide reading, then those are gonna be just according to what you're reading that day. But other subjects like Latin or um, grammar, um, I I've talked about grammar. I like to do it in tiny bits daily. Okay. Um, but but I, I think it really depends on your family. If yeah. If you get in a schedule and that schedule, to me, it was easier to do the same thing every day. And that way it wasn't up for grabs. Anything that's up for grabs or that changes frequently or that was how it was with the chore charts. You know, if it was yeah. changing all the time, it really was just going to fall apart because my whole life would have been making sure the chore chart was accomplished. Once you have something that's always done a certain way um, and, and we're going to talk about habits in a minute. But um, and, and there's some downside to that, too. So it can get boring and everybody can just kind of go into autopilot. Sometimes autopilot is actually a, a gift, but um, sometimes it isn't. So yeah. we can't just take these things wholeheartedly and say, well, this is the way you do it or that's the way you do it. Um, your family is going to be different. You're going to you, you have a lot of freedom in your family to decide that on your own. I just found for my own sanity, it was better just to have the same schedule pretty much every day. But, but did, sorry no, to interrupt. Well, did no, you, no, no. did you choose, you know, you said it wasn't a school day if you didn't do a little math, uh, a little reading and a little, a written, and a written oration. So two questions about that. When you say reading, do you mean um, the student, the kids spent a couple hours reading by themselves or are you reading aloud to them? No, at that point, it w I would be it would be like in morning time. If if a perfect school day would include morning time, and that would be me reading aloud. But okay. even if I wasn't doing morning time, they all had reading lists, and because of that, they they knew what to read each day. Because okay. um, and they may have like five or six books that they had to read from, and then I always had free reading at the bottom, and um, I let them pick a book for free reading. Now I didn't let them. Uh, once they pick the book, they had to read it. I didn't, it wasn't just go freely mud piddle around right, uh, right. Um, and find a book. Cause some kids will pick up one book one day and the next book another, and yeah. they won't stick right. with it. Yeah. You gotta, but, you're trying um, to teach them the habits of being a good reader. Yeah. So I make them stick with the book they pick unless, I mean, if they come to me and say, I just hate this book, I, I would be willing to change it. But I wasn't, it wasn't a situation Well, here's free reading, but really I'm going to play with Legos. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's how I did that. Okay. So, um, that brings up another follow-up question that I have. What did you do, um, for, for, for reading time? What did you do with, um, younger kids when they were not yet strong readers, but maybe they were just kind of learning to read or, or they knew a few words and the, the books were not long enough for them to really spend a long time with it. Did you give them picture books and have them look at picture books or give them a stack of kid like, you know, books that they were capable of reading? Or how did you navigate reading time in that, in that kind of at that age? Like that's where um, my oldest is right I now. I put them down for a nap. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Still, they were six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, See, no, I, I've got I, one that's about to be six and he's kind of learning to read. And he'll sit there with books that are way beyond his capacity and flip through them and find words that he likes. But he's not really reading it, you know? Right, right. Well, I would just let them play. Honestly, I would make sure they had a lot of play time. Yeah. I, would, I certainly wouldn't make them sit for two hours right, looking okay. at books. But uh, And I would try to take some time to read to them during the, when everybody else is reading. Then I might have time then to read to right, that child. Right, okay. So I would read to them as much as I possibly could. Um, it's 
if you're teaching them phonics and you want to spend every, a little bit every day on phonics, um, phonics is one of those things. If it's not working, um, and, and it really isn't working, it's best to just put it aside and come back to it. But it's also good to just do it a little bit at a time. And, um, but if you're, if you're not able to teach them phonics and you, the more you read to them, the better. Yeah. So, okay. I want to go back to the other question that I had then. So you chose math, reading, and, and written narration. Did you choose those things to be part of your day because you found that they gave you guys the routine that you, that you that was useful to you or because there was something inherently valuable about those subjects that you wanted them to do every day? Does, and maybe there's probably a little bit of both there, but does that question make sense? Well, definitely both, but most especially, I think that those are the things that um, add up over the years. Um, if you're reading every day, then you're going to be learning no matter what else is going on and what else is happening. You know, you're going to be putting ideas into your mind and processing them in some way. Uh, the math is just something that um, it's better not to do math in a hit and miss fashion. Right. And it's better for the kids to know, Hey, you just got to do the math that you just got to do it. You, there's yeah. just not going to be this. Oh, do I have to do math today going on? I mean, that is not going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you will, I mean, if it, it's so annoying, but math has got to be done, whether you're a good mathematician or, uh, or someone who hasn't yet learned to love math, then, then you, then, but you still are going to do some math every day. And, yeah. and of course with the little guys, it is your job as a mom to do that with them. Um, they need your help and they need, and, and math is tricky because a lot of times mom, you know, has to, um, oversee it very carefully. Um, you have to make sure that they're, if they're doing the lesson by themselves and you need to check it, which is a pain. Um, and if, the, because if you don't check it, it, bad habits will occur. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, but no, and writing, I'm, I'm just such a big believer in consistent writing over the years, say age 10 and, and up. And I, and I, there was a question the other day, I think it might've been on the mere motherhood page and I've just been running crazy and I didn't have time to answer, but I think someone said they were trying to get their seven-year-old to write two sentences and it was taking them all day. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for a seven-year-old, um, to, to write, um, if they're agonizing over the writing and, and the attention it's taking, I, I would cut back and just um, I would set a timer and say, you know, write, um, write. Sometimes the timer doesn't work with a, a small child because mm-hmm. um, but if they know there's an endpoint to say two sentences to them seems like an eternity. But to have to, to have them write maybe one sentence or a couple words and, and work up their muscles into more than that to where it's not so daunting that I would probably cut back on that until it, if they're taking all day, it's because they, they don't have the imagination to see that they can do it. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, in the spirit of a Q and a episode, we should probably move on to the next question. Okay. <laughs> uh, we could focus on any of these questions for, for quite a long time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so somebody sent in a question about the Charlotte Mason motto and how it's been, I guess the wording was changed over the years. Um, and I don't know a lot about this, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this, but, um, is it, is the show, so what does it mean that it's been changed? Why has it been changed? Should we care? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I got the question, 
I was really surprised because I had never thought about it. But I did know that I often got the motto mixed up in my mind. I'd often said, I am, I ought, I can, I will. And I didn't really know why I was always getting it mixed up and I hadn't really tuned into it. And then the girl um, wrote this letter to us and asked this question. And so I started to do a little research and it was, it was really fun. Um, one of the, the things that happens when you, um, when you, um, are reading through, uh, some of the Charlotte Mason literature, not just her volumes, but if you, when you get into the P and E, uh, U literature, you begin to see how, um, how these people after Charlotte died, even continued to have to think and and wrestle with ideas and there was a lot of freedom in the uh, in the Charlotte Mason community and um, well let me let me talk about this first and I'll go back and talk about how much freedom they had okay. but um, so so it when you read home education Charlotte Mason's first volume this girl is right it does say I am I ought I can I will and in fact Charlotte Mason says on that page that this is a natural progression that that should be left intact. And, and if you read it out of context, knowing that it later it was changed, you, if you wanted to be, you know, very strict about it, you would say, well, this could never be changed because in volume one, one Charlotte Mason said this, but it, it's interesting. It's on page three thirty of volume one. She's talking about um, the conscience and the thou shalt. And she refers to something called the steps of that ladder of St. Augustine. Now, um, and then she says, I am, I ought, I can, I will. And she goes through the progression. She talks about that. And um, she says, this is a natural progression. So right away, um, the first thing I did was I looked through all the volumes and I found out that, yes, indeed, she does say I am, I ought, I can, I will in volume one. And that's the last place we see it. The next time we see her referring to any of, of that is in volume three, where she says, I am, I can, I ought. And that's all she says. She doesn't finish it out. And later in volume six, she mentions once again, um, the fact that in the P and in the P and EU, the, 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 their correspondence school, their motto was, I am, I can, I ought, I will. Now, for as much as we hear that saying and as much as we think about it, that's all she mentions it three times um, or maybe four at the most in her volumes. Not very often does it occur, but she did change it um, from the very beginning. I think what happened was when they started to uh, create the correspondence school and they wanted to come up with a motto, they took that idea and, and then they just rearranged it and made it. That, that's my guess. Okay. If you look at if you go back and if you Google what is St. Augustine's? Now, let me let me real quick talk about um, the word Augustine, because um, there were two there's two historical figures called Augustine or Augustine. Right. And, and a lot of people get confused about the two. One mm -hmm. of the ways to keep them from being confused in your mind is the ancient um, Christian teacher can be called Augustine. And then the the more the the, the closer to us um, um English priest could be called Augustine. And if you, or let's say British priest, um, then if you have it that way, one, the Englishman is August, Augustine 
and the ancient guy is Augustine, then you always know who you're talking about, unless you're talking to someone who doesn't know that distinction, and then you <laughs> you're talking about. But yeah. often, most of the time, um, we're talking about um, St. Augustine, and, and that's how I like to pronounce it. But really, there's no... Um, you, you don't have to pronounce it that way. You can also say Augustine. That's the funny thing about pronunciation. There's, there's, um, as we're, as we're speaking on freedom, there is even freedom in pronunciation <laughs> often. <laughs> but, but last night, a... I, last oh, night I was playing basketball and there were pistachios, pistachios on the court. Oh, yeah. Someone had left them there. And so then I said, Oh, look at those pistachios. And someone was like, they, they all were making fun of me for saying pistachios. And I don't even know that I say pistach say it that way. I just said it that way in the moment. And yeah, I, I, like, yeah. I have no idea the way my parents would have said it, but it came out that way. And I guess now I have to stick to it. I don't know. No, I, I mean, if you're really like, uh, what do you call it? A split personality. You can like one time say pistachios, <laughs> one time pistachios. Um, I, it's I, probably uh, pistachios. I don't know. I don't know either. Now that you mention it, I don't even know what I say either. I'm pista- I think I say pistachios. but Which really um, begs the question why there were pistachio shells, pistachio shells on the basketball court. That's that's right. That is a weird place for them to be. Or if you go, I think at Costco, you can get them without the shell. Oh. <laughs> so well, who wants to not do the work? That's the whole point. Yeah, that's true. Well, then you can eat more and have more calories, <laughs> you know, is the Fair. problem. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Anyway, sorry, I distracted you. No, no, no. That's a good point, though. But yeah, so pronunciation is always funny. Um, but lo- what happened was, if you if you do that, you'll find a poem by Longfellow called "The Ladder of Augustine," uh, Saint Augustine's Ladder, and mm-hmm. and and it's also been made into a hymn. And I think that would be a cool hymn for people in the Charlotte Mason community to learn because she does refer to it. And and then if you do further research, you'll find that she was taking the ideas. So here's what she did. Augustine had seven steps that he considered uh, a ladder towards true spirituality. And Charlotte Mason is taking this idea and distilling it into four points. I am, I can, I ought, I will. And I, I find that very interesting that she's going back to an ancient idea and she's changing it around and, and and she's making her own thing and and, I, and you can find um, there's a there's an article online uh, there's many articles online about um, the these um, these the letter but if you want to look up one that really explains it clearly you can look up the scriptural roots of Saint Augustine's spirituality by Stephen N. Philippa or Philippo, or however else you might say that, which I can't even imagine, but it's <laughs> F-I-L-L-I-P-P-O. So you can learn a little bit more about it. So here we have an instance of Charlotte Mason um, going back to someone's steps and then and turning them into her own steps um, by her own process of thinking. And it reminds me also of the Bible verse in Second Peter where it says, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to your knowledge temperance um, and on and on and on until you finally get to uh, brotherly love. But um, um, so, so here we have not a, a set law, but a way of thinking about the way our, our faith and the way we live our life that she's taken from a church father and, um, and who is, you know, kind of taking it from scripture, but his own, his own thinking through scripture, which brings me to the point I really want to make, because when you're reading through um, the parents, 
National Education Union papers, and, and when you read through the parents' review articles, you get this feeling of how much freedom there was in the Charlotte Mason community and how they were looking back um, to other people for their ideas. They were looking at Charlotte's ideas and how that they applied. And they were looking at other ideas that, that actually filtered through Charlotte Mason where, where, where she had found ways to embody ideas from the past. Now that doesn't mean there what, what there wasn't any rancor in their midst or there weren't any divisions because all movements and all ideals are beset with differences of opinions and controversy. It's just always the way it is. I know I just recently read um, the book, The Fellowship. Um, and who is that by, David? The um, Carol Zaleski. Zaleski's, yes. Um, well, I read that book, and it was about the four four of the Inklings. It was about Owen Barfield, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams. And you see them in their lives, each of them move in and out of, if you have ideas and you get together with other people that have ideas that are similar to yours, um, there's going to be times when when you split or when you see things differently. Uh, we, if you look in the Bible, you see this again. Uh, Paul says, oh, some of you are saying I'm of Apollo and some are saying I'm a Paul and some are saying that I'm, uh, I'm, and then, you know, you have the real super spiritual people that are saying I, I'm of Christ. And Paul rebukes all of them. Um, and even the people that are saying I'm of Christ because they weren't saying I'm of Christ because they love God and they wanted to follow him. They were saying it as an, in an argumentative way to, to split hairs with one another. So I like to take the tact. Now, none of this is wrong. I mean, we don't have to fear controversy. One of the things it does, just like this girl asking me the question, you know, where did this motto, why did it change? There's nothing threatening about that. We just have to say, oh, this is going to cause me to go back and study and, and find out, well, why did it change? Um, anytime someone disagrees with us, it gives us a chance to reevaluate um, what we believe. And, and a lot of times um, you'll, we find that um, our, we were right in our thinking, but now we know why. So controversy really helps us in many ways. I mean, some, it does go too far many times and people get hurt and that's sad, but it also can help us to grow as people. But I really think that Charlotte Mason um, want, would want us to be free. The best humans are free people because freedom makes us responsible for our own thoughts and actions. Um, we don't see Charlotte Mason coming along and saying, I'm going to cut off the great conversation um, once and for all. But rather, she was contributing to it and enjoying it and, and saying, look, this is how this works. Um, so it, I, I really feel like we need to be careful that we don't try to say that that Charlotte Mason was the end all because I don't believe that she thought that she was. Mm. Now, um, one one of the, the thing that brought my this to my mind was that a friend of mine um, sent me an article from the Parents Review by a lady um, named. Um, Don Don Duran, my my aide de camp, mm -hmm. sent me this article, and she um, it was just a really really neat article from the Parents Review. I can't find it. 
Okay. And um, she got it from a girl named Kathy Livingston who posted this online. And, and, and it's a wonderful article about the idea of habits. And it, go, it touches on something we talked about here about habits can be good, but is there any negative um, fallout from habits? And you see Charlotte Mason promoted the idea of habits. But what if we take if, if we take our ideas too far, then, then we, we're going to make mistakes and we have to have the ability to to readjust our thinking and, and to change it. But one thing this lady, Mrs. Backhouse, said in, in her article was, I believe strongly in the importance of cultivating right habits and in the power they exert of, over us. But sometimes I have felt that there was a danger of putting habit almost in the place of God of thinking that everything can be accomplished by careful training and that a child can simply by care and watchful oversight be turned out a great and good character. Valuable as habit is, it cannot renew the heart. And the mother who trusts entirely to her training is in danger of sad disappointment. It seems to me that those who place too great and importance on habit, run the risk of leaving God no room to work. I would encourage in a child every good habit possible, but at the same time teach him what he will sooner or later learn by bitter experience that he needs a power beyond his good resolutions and training. Thus he will learn early the reality of asking for and receiving God's strength for doing right. It is surprising how soon a child will grasp this and learn to put it into practice, a lesson which, when once learnt, is a priceless value. To change an old saying, we might say, habit is a good servant, but a bad master. What is done merely through habit is more or less mechanical, and there is a danger of want of adaptation to surroundings and those who are too much bound by it. So um, I really really love that that quote because it, it warns us of the danger of taking things um, that are good and turning them too too far and not not being aware of the dangers about them so um, I, I, when the homeschooling movement first came out uh, somewhere in the early years there was a became a big um, big push for character training so yeah. much so that now I don't even like to hear the word character, but everybody <laughs> would be memorizing character qualities. It was the most inane and fruitless occupation <laughs> that you could do because how do you really imagine- feel about it? Yeah, <laughs> so, I really didn't like it. Well, I, well, I've seen the end of it too. So without yeah. the imagination, these definitions mm. are powerless. They mm. do nothing for us. And I think this article definitely addresses that. And mm. it, it, it dress, addresses the pitfalls of us looking for a panacea, a something that um, we think, you know, habit is great. But it's not going to cure everything. Yeah. Um, it, I love yeah. to talk about habit, and I will keep talking about it. But I think it's good to have this warning also um, out there. So that, yeah. that's all I have to say today about I want then, you know, to to put in a plug for the for the freedom that we have in the Charlotte Mason world that she herself, because she said we are born persons, uh, we know that as persons, um, that freedom is the way. Um, for us to take responsibility for ourselves. And she would mm-hmm. give us that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that in the Charlotte Mason community and maybe the homeschooling community at large, 
Um, and maybe the classical, specifically even the classical community at large, if you look at the schools and stuff there too, that there is an over-reliance, or maybe not an over-reliance, but a, um, a degree to which uh, too much faith is put into habit training and things like that. Is that what you're getting at? Like, is that, would you say that, is that explicit? Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's too, you can't, it's not that you can put too much emphasis on it, but you can put too much faith in it. Okay. Um, you have to, we, I think she's right. We do want our children to have good habits and we don't want to say, well, let them, but we do also want to, you know, I thought about my, uh, a, a situation I was in, in my family where what if, I do something and then that opens the door for my child to do something and then he gets in trouble and does something wrong. And and I, as my thinking was going through all this, I'm realizing it's the fact that he did something wrong at the first chance, which he didn't, um, would not be because I wasn't there. It would be because his heart would have been at that place anyway. And I, I just wouldn't have known it because I wouldn't have given his him a chance to exercise a muscle of growing and discerning and making a good decision. When are we let our children grow and discern and make decisions? Sometimes they skin their knee yeah, and that's good. Um, so I think that yes, habits are good. Um, but, but as with all, um, things, I think this comes back to Sabbath, which Angelina always talks about, but mm. even with habit, you know, maybe, maybe, um, there's a, we have to have Sabbath breaks from, from things just so that, so we don't put our confidence in the flesh instead of the spirit. Hmm. I suppose the, um, if it, like there is a certain extent to which a habit can be, can start to become or, or be, be, feel a little meaningless sometimes. Like if it's, yeah. o- if it's overdone, like especially kids when they, when they don't, not that we have to explain our purposes about everything we ask our kids to do, but when they when they stop seeing the purpose or when it feels like they're doing it for the sake of doing it, um, it's hard for them to to grasp the big picture of it. And again, I'm not saying we have to have no, our kids I, a lot like understanding right. the big picture all the time, but no, they don't. But they do like to be per- things do like to seem purposeful to them. Yeah, and they're going to yeah. learn better in a purposeful environment than they are. When uh, sure, sometimes they just have to have faith that hey, I need to know my 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 um, uh, my times tables. Right, I just right. you know I don't see any reason for this, but I have to know it. But sometimes they have to. Um, sometimes as much as much purpose as we can give them, I think we should. We should always, um, you know, give them a purpose for what they're doing. Yeah, and even uh, if they don't understand the purpose or they don't buy into it, at least presenting, you know that there's a reason why you're asking them to do something or that there's something bigger at stake or, you know, there's something that's going to help them in the long run. I mean, these things to off kids often feel like platitudes that are meaningless, but I think in the long run over time, that sense of purpose is really meaningful. Um, and you use the word imagination, like imagine the, the sense of imagination and purpose can go together, I think, and, and be meaningful, even if it's not in the short term, in the long run, it can be, can be transformative. Yeah, I think it goes back to that whole idea of wetting the palate. Um, you know, sometimes we, we fail at that and sometimes we can't do it. But as much as we can, um, we, we don't want to force them to eat. We want to wet their palates yeah. to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when they're younger, you have to do more forcing. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because if they rule the world, boy, yeah. and they do sometimes. Sometimes the habits that we have in our home are really the children's have habitualized you. Yeah, well, <laughs> you yeah are, that's true. You have yeah. a lot of habits, but you're the one uh, being run by the child. So um, there's always that. Who, yeah. Who's actually in charge here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just the perpetual question, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap this Q and A episode up? Um, no, I hope I didn't. I hope it wasn't too overwhelming. But um, that's <laughs> that's my thoughts for today. <laughs> All right. Well, um, again, if anybody has questions, any follow up questions, anything like that, um, you can shoot one of us an email. Cindy is Cindy at ordo amoriscom I'm David at CerseInstitute.com. Or you can find us on the Mere Motherhood Facebook group and post a question there. There's a pinned post at the top of that page where. We asked for some questions back in July, I think, and you can just keep adding questions to that thread if you'd like to contribute a question for a future episode. Um, later on in this September, we will have a, another a, uh, interview episode coming up. Uh, and that one will be with Leslie uh, from uh, home, the Homegrown Preschooler, who's a good friend of ours. And that's a really fun interview. So I think uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Yeah, um, I had a lot of fun talking to Leslie. She's yeah, she's awesome. great. She's high, very high energy. You like, I think people will really enjoy that. If you have, if you don't know Leslie yet, then you will be in for a treat. Um, and then we've got some other content ideas coming up down the pipeline. So be uh, be on the alert for lots of uh, Mason Jar, lots of Mere Motherhood content coming. Um, and we have a, a email coming out as well. So if you're not on the Mere Motherhood newsletter, uh, you can sign up for that at meremotherhood.com or under the resources tab uh, at cerceinstitute.com. I think that about covers all the business. If you haven't subscribed, we would appreciate that. You can find us uh, on the Cersei Institute podcast network feed, or you can find the show on its own feed if you'd like to do that. Um, Anything else we need to add? I think I think that about covers it, right? Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, thanks to Cindy for answering uh, questions. Um, for everyone here at Cersei, uh, I am David Kern saying farewell on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next time.